Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Episode 66, Who Killed Mary Rogers? Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. The Bowery Boys is brought to you by Eurocheapo.com. Eurocheapo editors personally visit and review the best budget hotels in Europe. Now with hotels in New York City. On the web at Eurocheapo.com. Good evening and welcome to the Bowery Boys. My name is Greg Young. Tom's not here this week in today's solo show. I'm bringing you a tale of mystery, one of early New York's big, quote, crimes of the century, a murder that so paralyzed New York that it actually changed the city itself. The story of Mary Rogers, better known as the beautiful cigar girl, and the strange events that occurred in 1841 involve a lot of things that I actually happen to love about reading these when I read these old New York stories. Hysterical newspaper headlines, all strata of classes coming together on basically the same streets, and the relatively vanished worlds of boarding houses and tobacco shops. This is an era of New York where, as they say, things were just getting interesting. And there'll be more than a few famous names tossed in here along the way, including one of America's greatest writers, and easily the most notorious woman of 19th century New York, a woman who reveled in the nickname that she was frequently called She-Devil. So grab your magnifying glass, and let's go see if we can find out who murdered Mary Rogers. Our story begins on the west side of City Hall Park at a bustling, fragrantly notable business named Anderson's Tobacco Emporium at 319 Broadway. The year is 1838, and although New Yorkers are beginning to move up to the more elegant neighborhoods like Union Square and Gramercy Park, the area around City Hall and downtown Manhattan, it's still the heart of the city. The proprietor's name is John Anderson, and he sold some of the finest tobacco in the United States fancily wrapped, and it would later be known as Anderson's Solace Tobacco because a U.S. general came in one day and claimed the famous fine-cut tobacco provided him with solace. Because of Anderson's prime location here right next to City Hall, he attracted all the finest gentlemen of New York, from the mayors and politicians fuming about to the newspapermen of nearby Publishers Row. 
Now, when you rub elbows with power, some of it's bound to rub off, and Anderson soon fell into the favors of the Democratic machine Tammany Hall, and much later would almost be goaded into running for mayor of New York. But in 1838, despite Anderson's own personal fame, it probably wasn't Anderson people were stopping by for, or for that matter, his tobacco. Because behind the counter, behind the spittoons and the cases of imported cigars, stood a young woman sales clerk known so well for her beauty and her charm and her wiles that by simply coming into work every day, this woman, Mary Rogers, became a New York local celebrity. It's a little disingenuous to kind of find a modern equivalent of Rogers, the beautiful cigar girl, as they called her. But I guess you just imagine the Seinfeld soup man, except a gorgeous young woman and cigars, not soup. She was 18 when she started working there and was apparently so beguiling that Anderson's business actually exploded the moment she came into the door. Men wrote poems about her. She fielded dozens of suitors, some of whom she consented to, as we'll find out, and even marriage proposals. Anderson himself was rumored to have wooed her. The newspapers wrote about her because half the editors were obviously as smitten. One day on October 5th, 1838, Mary Rogers didn't show up for work. Naturally, because of her notoriety, a few newspapers even wrote about her disappearance and threw in this rather disturbing detail. Mary's mother, Phoebe, desperately looking around for her daughter, had found a letter basically amounting to a suicide note in her room. Well, by the time that the ink had basically dried in the newspapers the next day, Mary had, just as mysteriously enough, returned home. In fact, focus even turned on to John Anderson during this whole hubbub, who one newspaper claims had arranged the entire disappearance as a publicity stunt. In fact, it's true, all the papers did write about his shop that day. So Mary worked for another year at Anderson's Tobacco Emporium, finally quitting in 1840 to work at her mother's new boarding house. But perhaps because the boarding house was so close to her former place of employment, just on the other side of City Hall and one block away from Publishers Row at 126 Nassau Street, men and everyone else continued to recognize Mary on the street. So as you'll soon hear, the legend of Mary Rogers, it just becomes so entangled in all this newspaper hyperbole. She becomes such a symbol, if you will, that it's hard to figure out exactly what Mary's true personality really is anymore. I don't necessarily believe, as some of the newspapers at the time definitely intimated, that she was this poor, innocent woman who was completely unaware and unprepared for the dangers of the big urban city jungle. At the same time, though, it would be incredibly difficult to be a single woman in the city at this time. And even in the relative politeness of pre-Civil War New York, she must have been the target of all manner of unwanted advantage and harassment. So Mary lived and worked with her mother Phoebe in this respectable boarding house here on Nassau Street. By the way, there's a pet shop at that address today, one block east of Park Row. The boarding house mostly catered to single gentlemen, some respectable, others not quite so respectable. You might refer to them as the Bowery Bahoys, that kind of rascally type and occasional ruffian that thrived in the 1830s and 40s. It seemed that Mary received the attentions of both types of men. Representing the gentlemanly was Alfred Cromelin, whose advances towards Mary were very gently rebuffed. She'd been friendly with a sailor who had boarded there as well, and his name was William Kaikook, and his ship was docked at the Brooklyn Navy Yard. And so far on the other end of respectability was young, handsome Daniel Payne, who was a cork cutter, and he was a severe alcoholic, obviously disliked by Mary's mother and, of course, by his rival, Cromelin, who actually moved out of the boarding house in jealousy. Okay, so to recap this veritable episode of Murder, she wrote, for all of you Jessica Fletchers out there, your suspects so far, 
You have this slightly lecherous businessman who owns a tobacco shop. You have an older, jilted lover. You have this transient boat hand and a dangerous, drunken boyfriend that nobody really likes very much. The bad boy, if you will. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. Well, one hot day on July 25th, 1841, Mary told her beau, Daniel, that she was going to go off to visit an aunt and that he should meet her that evening in front of the newly opened Barnum's American Museum, just a couple blocks away on the corner of Broadway and Anne. Dan was indeed there waiting for her even through pouring rain, but Mary actually never showed up. Later on, he claimed to spend the next day traveling all over the area from Harlem to Staten Island, even to Bellevue Hospital in search of Mary. After seeing Mary's distressed mother, Phoebe, even the gentleman, Cromelin, even got into the act, and he feared that Mary might have been drugged and held against her will in some brothel. Unfortunately, three days later, across the water in Hoboken, New Jersey, at this very popular stretch of shoreline called Elysian Fields. And there was actually a cave there called Sybil Cave. And all of this actually attracted a lot of New Yorkers who would take a ferry over from Barclay Street. Well, it was here that these two men were walking along when they found a horribly violated body of a woman in a turn that's absolutely not suspicious in any way. No siree. Cromelin just happened to be out there at Elysian Fields at just that time. He ran to the body, which he didn't easily recognize until he pulled up the woman's sleeve where he could identify Mary, he claimed, by some of the hairs along her arm. A shoddy autopsy by a local doctor revealed that Mary had been murdered. She had been horribly beaten, sexually violated, and tied with strips from her very own dress. This would have been a particularly vicious crime in any era, but what turned this tragedy into a citywide and even national hysteria is that it happened in the dawning years here of the Penny Press. Now, the Penny Press was sort of an informal newspaper that was sold on the streets that had sprung up in 1833 with the creation of the one-cent New York Sun and later a one-cent cheaper version of its rival, the New York Herald. Now, unlike the slightly more expensive broadsheets and more respectable broadsheets, I guess, the Penny Press excelled in sensation and scandal, often running half-truths and gossip and even hoaxes in a way to get people to buy these papers. The tabloid papers and the tabloid-style networks that we're used to today are obviously evolved versions of New York's very early penny papers. And just like the cynicism of today's newspapers with their Natalie Holloways and their John Bonnet Ramseys, 
The editors of The Sun and The Herald recognized that nothing sells a paper faster than a dead girl. The papers followed every salacious detail of the police investigation, and in the process putting in horrific physical descriptions of the victims and depictions of the suspects that went far over the boundaries of proper decency for the time. Most all the men that I've mentioned in the story were brought in for interrogation. Suspicion naturally fell first on Payne, the bad boy of the story, who actually had an alibi and went so far as to release signed affidavits to the press to clear his name. Others, like Anderson, the tobacco seller, well, he had powerful friends who kept all of this out of the papers. Key Cook, that would be the sailor in the story, well, he was arrested as the strips on Mary's dress were supposedly tied in knots that only a sailor would know. He was tossed into the tomb to rot for a couple days, but then later released without ever being charged. In fact, the only significant suspect who wasn't brought in was Cromelin, the man who just happened to have been around when the body was discovered. Unusual. As with any mass hysteria, the press, who had collectively then decided that Mary was robbed, violated, and murdered by a gang of men, blamed the inadequate New York police force for botching the case and not preventing the crime in the first place. In a clever bit of cross-pollination, James Gordon Bennett, who was the editor of the New York Herald at the time, decided to turn this case into a cry for reform. Disgraced and dishonored in the eyes of the Christian and the civilized world, he proclaimed, forming a community group called the Committee of Safety to press for radical changes in New York's police force. Unbelievably, it would eventually work. New York Governor William Seward posted a huge reward for information on the crime. And just a few years later, the state would actually totally revamp the city's law enforcement. Now, a twist comes into the tale at this time with a woman maybe appropriately named Frederica Loss. Now, Loss operated a tavern called Nick Moore's Inn. It wasn't actually very far from Elysian Fields. On September of 1841, she came forward claiming that her sons had found a bundle of women's garments, a parasol, and a handkerchief embroidered with Mary's name, all hastily concealed inside a nearby thicket. This, of course, sparked the papers with lots of new theories, and it filled their pages with illustrations of this newly revealed, quote, murder thicket. Something about this new revelation obviously set something off in Mary's old boyfriend, Daniel Payne, the bad boy. On October 7th, Payne checked himself into a local Hoboken hotel in a very distraught state of drunkenness. He told a man there, Suppose you know me? I'm the man who was to have been married to Mary Rogers. I'm a man in a good deal of trouble. Sometime in the evening, Payne stumbled to almost the exact same spot where Mary's dead body was found, drank a bottle of laudanum, essentially as poison, and fell over dead. On his body was found a suicide note, quote, To the world, here I am on the spot. God forgive me for my misfortune in my misspent time. Was Daniel Payne guilty of the murder of Mary Rogers? Or if he was simply aggrieved, then was there something in particular that weighed upon him? Any substantial leads about Mary's death essentially dried up after this, and as the press is wont to do, they moved on to the newest, freshest, headline-grabbing crime. But in the fall of 1842, the next year, an accidental act of violence would throw the case back to the top of the front pages. One day, at the Nickmore Inn, one of the sons of the tavern owner, Frederica Loss, well, he was cleaning his gun, and it accidentally went off, shooting his own mother in the leg. As doctors were attending to her, Frederica, who had gone downhill rapidly and was basically at death's door now, well, she announced that she had a confession to make. She claimed that Mary had in fact come to Elysian Fields and to the Nickmore Inn with a strange man, not for any kind of sexual dalliance, but for something far more unspeakable, at least for this time, an abortion. 
obviously looked down upon by conventional society in 1840, it was in fact very possible to get an abortion in New York at this time. And if you needed one, you went to one woman. Her name was Madame Ristel, who would rule over an entire network of clandestine abortion locales in the New York area. Far from being a shadowy figure herself, she could afford to hire top lawyers to defend her in court, and eventually she moved uptown to a very lavish townhouse on Fifth Avenue, believe it or not, just a couple blocks away from St. Patrick's Cathedral, and she could often be seen traveling through the streets in a carriage of white horses. She was actually at the beginnings of her career in 1841 and lived in a less opulent home at 148 Greenwich Street. It was never really clearly proven that Mary had actually gone to see an associate of Madame Restell, but for years after the murder had faded from the headlines, these moral tirades and short stories would emerge linking the two women. Restell was always, of course, described as a she-devil, and Rogers, in most cases, is as colored as a sort of, quote, defenseless young woman, unquote, caught up in the clutches of an underworld that destroys everything, beautiful and innocent. According to the writhing, dying figure of Frederica Loss, Mary died at the Nickmore Inn after a failed procedure, and in fact her own sons had dragged the body to the river and disposed of Mary's possessions in the thicket. Two of her sons were actually arrested, but charges were dropped for lack of evidence. The supposed physician who would have done the procedure was never found. Frederica's story was actually just written off as delirious babbling. As I said, the story of poor Mary Rogers would soon be overtaken in the newspaper by other scandals, and it might have been forever forgotten to us if not for the help of a man who's no stranger to grim and macabre stories, Edgar Allan Poe. Believe it or not, Poe had actually lived in New York at the same time as Mary Rogers worked at the counter of Anderson's Tobacco Emporium. Well, he must have swung by here at some point, but at the time of Mary's death, he was actually living in Philadelphia. He had recently published a story that had been a huge success called The Murders in the Rue Morgue, and he was looking for a sequel to serialize for publication. Turning to just the printed facts of the Mary Rogers murder, Poe created a story using the same main character, Detective C. Auguste Dupin, called The Murder of Marie Roger. Essentially changing the names to protect the innocent and the guilty, Poe uses extremely rigid powers of deduction to solve the crime. And while I have to say the story is a little dry, we look back at it today as one of the very first detective fictions ever written. By the way, in Poe's version, he claims that the murderer is, well, I'm not going to ruin everything for you. John Anderson, the tobacco shop owner, well, he never really escaped the specter of Mary Rogers, and in old age, he became convinced that he was actually being haunted by her. He basically went insane, and after he died in Paris in 1881, it was revealed in a family lawsuit that Anderson might have paid Edgar Allan Poe $5,000 to write the Marie Roger story in an effort to take any remaining questions of guilt off his shoulders. Who really knows if that really happened? I mean, Poe must have certainly known Anderson from the tobacco shop, but if it did happen, then what was Anderson hiding? As for Madame Restel, she went in and out of trials and jail cells for her links to these illegal abortion practices, but she created quite an empire for herself for a while there. However, in 1878, after a final indictment threatened to send her up the river for good, Madame Restel cut her own throat in the bathroom of her lavish Fifth Avenue home. As for the mystery of Mary Rogers, technically it's still never been solved. If you want to take a crack at it and go through some of the evidence, there's actually a couple really good books you can start with. 
One of them is called The Mysterious Death of Mary Rogers by Amy Gilman Shrebnik, and of course the book The Beautiful Cigar Girl by Daniel Stashauer. Well, that's my story of Mary Rogers. I promise that this will be my last grim and gory podcast for a little while. Thank you very much for listening. Check out our blog, of course. That's BoweryBoysPodcast.com. You'll be happy to know that some of our older episodes are now up on iTunes under another podcast that's called Bowery Boys Archive. So just check that one out. And a lot of the episodes are cleaned up and remixed and some of them even have some pictures embedded in them. So they're a little bit fancier and they sound great. They sound much better. Thank you very much for listening. Tom will definitely be back next week. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. <laughs>